We'll be in Hebrews chapter 6 tonight. Hebrews chapter 6. Does anybody need a handout? Aww. If you're in youth group when I was in there, that's a familiar sight because I would always forget that was up there. And then I'm waxing eloquent for five minutes and realize my kids are up on the screen the whole time instead of what I want to be up on the screen. So please hold tight while I change. That's right. It was all planned. It was all planned. There we go. All right. There we go. All right. We're ready to go now. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Well, if, uh, if this is your first time joining us in Hebrews, you jumped in the deep end on your first time. Because we are about to read a passage of scripture that is probably um, one of the more difficult passages of scripture to interpret. All right, And uh, there are differing opinions on this. But uh, we don't want to shy away from the difficult passages of Scripture. Uh, we want to face them head on. We want to wrestle with them. We want to seek God's uh, enlightenment and, and illumination uh, in it. And in fact, uh, the Scripture itself tells us that there are some passages of the Bible that are hard to understand. Did you know that? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 uh, Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of this matter, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, right? So Peter uh, basically says, you know, some of the stuff that Paul's writing, kind of hard to understand. And uh, he says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So there's two uh, truths there. Number one, some portions of Scripture are hard to understand. And the second truth is, um, those that don't wrestle with them, what do they end up doing? Well, they twist them uh, to their own destruction. The ignorant and the unstable twist those Scriptures. So we don't want to twist Scripture. We want to uh, interpret it as faithfully and accurately as we can. And so that's what we're going to seek to do tonight. Um, let me give you a back, some background and some context of where we were before. It's been a couple weeks because last night we had our family game night, and so we'll have a little bit of a refresher. Uh, chapter 5 was about the high priesthood of Christ and how he sympathizes with us. The end of chapter 4 into chapter 5 talks about his, his sympathy, his, uh, his acting on our behalf before God. Um, and uh, we see his calling and that it's his job and he does it well and he's sympathetic. And then in verse 10, we see this mention of Melchizedek. Remember Melchizedek? And, uh, and how that launches the author into this kind of a sidebar, so to speak, and, uh, and addresses the readers and basically says, I wish I could tell you more about Melchizedek, but you guys aren't as mature uh, as you should be spiritually. Uh, verse 11, about this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And that's slow, lazy, apathetic. And so we talked last time about how the, the importance uh, for us to grow, to mature, that um, when we're new in the faith, milk is good and appropriate, but we want to grow in our appetite of God's word. We don't want to stay at the milk stage. We want to grow in our discernment. We want to grow in our knowledge of scripture so that we can be discerning to know the difference between good and evil. And so that's where we are, uh, that's where we left off. 
in the beginning of chapter 6, the author decides to just push them on to maturity. He's like, okay, you should be further along. Uh, hang on, because here we go. Uh, look at the beginning of verse 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. You know, you should be further along than this, Christians, so we're going for it. And uh, see if you can keep up and stay along for the ride. And so this is what he does in chapter 6. Um, and so he's going to try to um, give the reason why they're moving on to maturity. Um, and so uh, we'll dig into the beginning of chapter 6. My guess is we'll get, we won't finish the chapter for sure, um, but we'll see how far we get. I'm going to go ahead and begin by reading uh, verses 1 through 8 uh, in its entirety of chapter 6. And then we'll pray and ask God to guide us uh, in, the, in the study of his word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and of the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its, and its end is to be burned. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the passages that are easy to read. We thank you for the passages that are harder to interpret. But Lord, we thank you for your spirit who guides us and helps us um, and, and allows us the opportunity to, uh, to navigate your word and sometimes wrestle with it so that we can know uh, your will for us and your word for us. Guide us, give us clarity. Um, as we seek to interpret your word tonight, and that we be even comforted by the truth that we find in it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Why do you think verses 1 through 8 are a difficult passage? As we are reading through it, can anyone venture to guess why this is tough? Long run on sentences. <laughs> okay, so just the comma after comma after comma after comma. Um, it's, it's times like that where you think, maybe this was written by Paul, because he, he does that a lot. Um, when we talk about, so, so beginning in verse 4, it's impossible, for, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, gives a bunch of descriptions, um, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Why is that, what's difficult about that, Justin? It has the appearance of yeah, yeah, did you see that? It kind of might give that impression, right? Um, okay, someone has been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. And then they've fallen away to restore them again to repentance because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And uh, one view of this passage is, well, this is saying that you can get saved and then you can lose your salvation. Now, I will say at the outset, for clarity's sake, that I reject that view 
Um, I don't believe that that is what the scripture is saying. I don't believe that's what this passage is saying. Um, and there's plenty of other passages we can turn to that point to the truth that uh, those whom God makes new cannot be unmade new. Um, that those who come to him will never be cast out. That those are adopted into his family will never be removed from his family. And so, um, while I reject that view, I want to be faithful to Scripture, and I don't want to just interpret a passage already ignoring, you know, something, and, and, and allow my own, you know, my own preconceptions to color how I interpret the text. We want to just interpret the text for what it is. Uh, let me give you some other ways in which people have interpreted this passage. Some people uh, will say, well, this is talking about um, a Christian who is backsliding. Um, this is when it talks about uh, the... Um, They've tasted the heavenly gift, they've fallen away. Um, that's a Christian they still save, they're just backsliding, they're in a bad spot. There's a couple things that prevents me from holding to that view. Um, namely, when it talks about the end result of, of these individuals, um, near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. All right, that does not sound like a backsliding Christian to me. Um, another view that is held is this, this is a hypothetical situation that can't happen. Okay, that seems like a stretch, right? Some people say, well, this is, this is just a hypothetical that if someone were saved and then rejected it, they couldn't be saved again. Okay, well, if it's a hypothetical that can't happen, why are we talking about it, right? That's, that's kind of how I, I view that one. So, what is the meaning of this passage? Well, we will dig into it, and hopefully we'll come to a clear conclusion that the scripture, the passage itself, shows us, and that's what I want to try to do tonight. And I don't want this to be, and neither does the author of Hebrews want this to be a passage that worries us. Um, you're going to see as we go through this passage, the author's kind of thinking as he's writing, this might be worrying some people, and so he actually makes some steps to reassure, uh, to comfort, and to, um, and to uh, encourage those who might be concerned. Well, let's go ahead and dig in. Verses 1 through 3 will begin as he talks about moving ahead and going on to maturity, right? Verse, verse 1, let us leave the doctrine, elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So what are we talking about when he's saying leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity? Is he saying that we're rejecting the elementary doctrine of Christ? We're seeing it as less important? No, that's not what's happening, right? Um, he's saying let's build on that. Uh, let's, in fact, look in the next phrase, not laying again a foundation. So he's saying the foundation has been laid. So let's not lay that foundation again. Let's move on to maturity. He wants his readers to go deeper into the doctrine of Christ. It's time to build on the elementary doctrine of Christ. And then he, specific, and then he specifies the elementary doctrines that he's leaving for deeper truths. So we see uh, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And here, he is specifying what he considers to be the elementary doctrine of Christ. So what are these teachings? Most of them are pretty clear. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, uh, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. We all have a frame of reference for what those means. What about instruction about washings 
and laying on of hands. How are those uh, elementary doctrines of scripture? Um, instruction about washings. Anyone want to take a stab at maybe what's that that's referring to? Uh, yeah, Pat. It very well could be talking about baptism. Yep. In fact, the, um, the Greek word is baptizmos, uh, which could be either referred to as, as the practice of baptism. It also could be referred to in a Jewish context of ritual washings and, and things like that. Um, what about laying on of hands? What do you think that's referring to? It could be. All right. Anything else? Yeah, Gideon? Okay, so yeah, blessing or praying for somebody. That could be an idea. Justin? It's almost like the initiation of this is my right, this is my good word, my confirmation that they are in the bond of Christ. Okay, yeah, it could be. Um, you know, the, the short answer is it's not clear. <laughs> so um, let me give you my best understanding of what's happening here and, and why these are considered to be the elementary doctrines of Christ, all right? Um, I see one and two um, as referring to the, the start of your Christian life, right? Repentance from dead works, uh, faith toward God, repentance and faith, right? Um, that's, that's how you begin your Christian walk. The, the, the second two, three and four, um, my best interpretation of is these are these are descriptions, while unclear, speaking of the the journey or the life of the Christian. Um, if instruction about washings is it could be referring possibly to baptism, um, laying on of hands in the New Testament. We often see that in the early church connected to the Holy Spirit um, or the, the the gift of the Holy Spirit or uh, Timothy when he was appointed um, as a pastor, the laying on of hands on him. But uh, I, I basically combine those two ideas into the, the, the journey or the life of the Christian, right? Spirit-filled life um, as, as you're entering into the, uh, the family of God. And then the last one, five and six, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, I'd say the culmination. All right, and so you can see he's kind of spanning the whole Christian life, beginning, middle, and end. And uh, you might say that these are the, the ABCs of Christianity. And we might phrase them differently. Um, but, uh, but that's probably what he's seeking to communicate here. Let's not lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. He's saying, we've already talked about this. You know this stuff. Let's leave that foundation. Let's move on to deeper things. And what do we read at the beginning of the, in verse 3? And this we will do if God permits. So he's saying, we're going for it. All right? We're going for it. We're going to start digging into deeper truths. With that foundation laid, he wants to move on to maturity. And then starting in verse 4, here's where we get into the difficulty. Now, Verse 4 begins with the word for. So, how is verse 4 and following contributing to verses 1 through 3? What function is it playing? When you say this, for, or because this, 
How is the second phrase contributing to the first? Yeah. Seems like a contrast from the saying, this we will do for a positive, mm -hmm. but then he goes and says that it's impossible to follow it. Okay. It's almost like a saying, this, all of this stuff is possible, and I'm about to say now, yeah. it's impossible. Okay, so he, there, there's definitely a contrast, and um, verses four and following is going to talk about someone who is, you could say, not moving to maturity. Um, verses one through three is saying, let's move on. And verse four is kind of presenting that contrast. Good. A reason for it. Okay, right? So that's often what we say when we say for or because. We'll do this if God permits, because it's impossible. What's impossible? Well, we'll, we'll find that out here in a bit. Okay. So verses four and six is giving the reason why the believers should move on to maturity. Let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Let's move on to maturity. Verse 4, 4, because something is impossible. And we'll find out what that is. Let's go ahead and take some time to understand verses 4 through 6 before we really connect it to verses 1 through 3. And again, what I like to do, especially when you have, as, as, as Tom pointed out, a kind of like run-on sentences, phrase after phrase after phrase, Isolate the main sentence, all right? Isolate the main idea. And so we see, for it is impossible. Phrase, 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 phrase. Can anyone find later on where the sentence concludes? Very good, all right? So right here, verse six, to restore them again to repentance. So there is the main thought, okay? It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. All right, so what questions arise? What do you need to answer after finding out that main sentence? It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. What's the question in our minds? Okay, yeah. I thought repentance was always possible. Why are you saying Okay, so in what, in what situation is repentance impossible? Okay, that's a, that could be a concerning, troubling thing. Uh, what else might, questions might arise from this? Who? David was given some gestures there in the background. Restore them again to repentance. Who's the them? All right. And so we'll, we'll figure that out. Yes. On the other hand, you can be full of knowledge. Yeah. Word, yeah. Mm -hmm. But never read through the gospel. Yeah. So one thing is have knowledge and be really safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that means you've never been created at age. You've never been yep. actually saved at the beginning. Right. Julio's giving away some spoilers here. So <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> All right. So it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Some questions arise. Who's the them? And in what sense is it impossible to restore them? We see that they've fallen away, verse 6, right? What is this falling away? You know, we want to define that. We want to see... Uh, what the answer is. And so we discover two things. These individuals, whoever they're talking about, they've experienced something and they have fallen away. All right, that's their description. So in order to understand this passage, we need to find out, number one, what did they experience? 
And number two, what does it mean to fall away? If we're going to get to the meaning of this passage, again, we gotta dig in, we gotta do the hard work of thinking through this carefully. And if you're really tired after long days of work, I'm sorry, uh, but we're gonna try to dig in as much as we can because there's this important truth here that we want to make sure that we understand. Um, all right, so we see a list of descriptions in verses four through five describing who he's talking about and what they have experienced. Um, and here are those descriptions, right? They have, what we know about them, they have once been enlightened, they have tasted the heavenly gift, they have shared in the Holy Spirit, they have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then, they've fallen away. So let's see if we can understand um, what that experience is. Again, uh, at first glance, we may look at this passage and conclude this is someone who's genuinely saved and they lose their salvation. They fall away. In fact, this is what Arminian theology will teach, that you can, uh, you can be saved and you know, no one can take your salvation away, but you can forfeit your salvation. You can give it back, right? And again, I don't think that's what this passage is teaching, but hopefully I can explain why I think that. You know, there's a phenomenon that occurs frequently in life that we need to take account for, and this is something that we've already addressed in this study as well. There's a lot of people out there who say that there was a time in their life when they were firmly convinced the Bible was true. They read all the books, they went to all the conferences, they witnessed to lost people, they went to church every time they could, but now they just don't believe it anymore. They've rejected Christianity, all right? Show of hands, who knows someone who that's your testimony? All right? A lot of people, okay? That is not an uncommon occurrence. And you go up to those individuals and say, what happened to you? What would they say? I, I believed it, I lived it, now I don't. What do we do with that, <laughs> right? Yes, Bernadette. Did it ever be saved in the first place? That's one question I mm -hmm. Did it ever save? Because if you're saved, you may walk away for a certain time, but you don't lose your salvation, right. you may come back again. You mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so again, I, I would agree with you that 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 I believe that if that for the that experience, that's not someone who has you know as Julio said knows the truth. They have not. Uh, it has not resulted in a saving faith uh, of their soul. Now, I would venture to guess that if you if you said that to an individual that that's their testimony and, and you said, you know, they said yeah I believed it completely, and now I don't. And you say, well, no, and you didn't actually ever believe it. They, they'd take offense at that, probably, right? They'd be like, I did. I believed it. I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and now I don't. Now, that's something, again, we don't want to just ignore that experience. I'm standing here and saying, yes, those who are saved cannot lose their salvation. And, 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 and someone who ultimately rejects Christ, I would full-heartedly say they never had Christ. Um, but we still need to, to, to wrestle with that difficult situation that we experience in our lives. Um, and in fact, I believe this passage of Scripture is explaining that. And just as that situation is hard to understand, the Scripture that explains it is also hard to understand. And that's, so that's kind of frustrating. But we'll look at it. Did you have a, your hand up there? Nancy, did you have your hand up? No. I oh. Just oh, sorry. It's always dangerous. You don't want to hit your head or anything like that. I might call on <laughs> oh, oh no, that, was, that was a good, good try. Good try. All right. Um, so what's going on here, right? 
How do we explain stories like that? I, I don't think it's enough for us to say, ah, they were just pretending the whole time. It's just an act. I don't think they would say that. They would say, no, this is what I believed. And at the same time, I don't believe this, the Bible allows us to conclude that they were genuinely saved and then lost it. So this is such a common occurrence in real life. We would expect the Bible to account for situations like this. I believe this passage is one of those passages that account for that. Ginny. Well, that's definitely true that Christians, Christians backslide. I mean, we, we, you know, those who are genuinely saved will go through seasons where we're not living for the Lord. That's exactly right. The question we want to ask is, is that what this passage is describing or not? Yeah. Do you think there are people who genuinely believe they were saved from the Lord? Yeah. I, I, the short answer, in other words, can, can someone deceive themselves into thinking that I am saved when they're not saved? I think that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't this like one of the soils? We'll get there. We'll get there. Yep. Spoilers all over the place. You guys are ahead of me. That's good. That's good. Um, what, uh, let me just say this. I, I'm, I'm kind of holding out the difficulty right now. But as we go through this passage, I think you're going to see, oh, okay. This is actually not as unclear as I'm presenting it to be. Okay. I know I'm presenting it as, oh, this is anomalous and really difficult. As we go through it, you'll be like, okay, yeah, actually, that makes, that makes complete sense. Whoops. You can't interpret it if you can't read it. Oh, oh it, it timed out. I've been waxing eloquent too much. There we go. There we go. All right. Gideon. So one of the things that I'm thinking about is this is something where you could be recognizing people that followed the Old Testament, and then instead of following God mm -hmm. when Christ was there, that they're looking at it and they continue following the, um, the rules that uh -huh. they have, the traditions that they have set up. And so instead of being someone that is enlightened and touched by the Holy Ghost or mm -hmm. having God in their life in that way, mm -hmm. instead they start following their own way while still saying that that is uh, God. Okay, that's, that's interesting, especially in context of Hebrews, where we're talking about people that might be tempted to stick with the Judaistic teaching, and right? The repentance involved is also self-sacrifice. There's a Mm -hmm. We're going over. Um, it does mention um, people basically sacrificing or, or giving, um, in a sense, for for uh, repentance or some form of sanctification. Mm -hmm. But if, in the absence of God, it makes it where there's no such thing. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so again, could this be someone who's, in a sense, seen God's truth in the Old Testament light, um, but haven't they they they've not embraced the full truth? That's possible. Um, Let's, let's dig into this experience a little bit to make sure we get to some clarity. Let's remember the context of the book, because we've already seen one warning passage in the book of Hebrews, and it was in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. If you have your Bible, uh, flip back there real quick, because again, if we have an understanding of the first warning passage, I think that the second warning passage is going to have some similarity to that. Um, we learned this truth in that first warning passage, that there's, there, are, there was a type of people that were along for the ride, but they had not bought into the message. And what illustration was used to describe that type of person who has seen the work of God, but has not known his ways? What story from the Old Testament was used for that? 
Moses and the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness, right? So, again, if we were back in chapter 3, let me scroll back up there again. This is where we saw the first warning passage. Look in verses 7 through 9. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test, saw my works 40 years. Um, and I was provoked with that generation. They said they always go astray in my heart. They have, in their heart, they have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here's the warning, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. There's that same term we see in, in, in Hebrews 6. Fall away from the living God. Later on in verse 18 through 19. Whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Um, and so again, we made this point in that passage that there was people going through the wilderness and they saw the works of God and they saw all his miracles and they enjoyed his provision. They ate the manna. They walked through the Red Sea. They saw his miracles. They were, they were miraculously protected. But all the while, they had an evil, unbelieving heart and when push came to shove, while they were enjoying his benefits and his blessings, when it came time to believe his promises, what did they do? Not for, no, I'm not going in. I don't believe it. I don't trust it. And they fell in the wilderness. They revealed that their hearts were not, they were not saved. They, they, were not, they had an evil, unbelieving heart. So we've already identified a group of people in this book made up of those who experienced the goodness of God and saw his works for 40 years but ended up falling away and not entering the promised land because they had an evil heart of unbelief. So with that illustration and context in mind, let's go back to chapter 6 and see if that same illustration fits into our passage. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Those in the wilderness who, were one, who, who had an evil, unbelieving heart. Could we fit this phrase into their experience? I think you could, right? You could even maybe even point to the pillar of fire that, 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 that led the way. Um, what about tasted the heavenly gift? Could be, could be the idea of manna, right? That, that, that they saw, they, they experienced that. They shared in the Holy Spirit. Again, this is one where we might say, man, that sounds like salvation, sharing the Holy Spirit. But there's a very real sense in which those unbelieving individuals in the wilderness enjoyed the protection and the work of the Spirit right along with the saved. They tasted the goodness of the Word of God. What did these, what did these unbelieving individuals experience? They heard the Word of God straight from God on Mount Sinai, and they got the law delivered straight to them. And they fell away. So, what I believe Hebrews 6 is describing is the same type of people that we saw in Hebrews 3 and 4. Those who enjoy the blessing of being included in the community of believers. They hear the word, they partake in the blessings, they tasted his goodness, but just like those in the wilderness who had an un evil, unbelieving heart, they too don't possess a genuine saving faith that perseveres to the end. So what does it mean to fall away? Well, again, in chapters 3 and 4, fall away referred to their condemnation as a result of their evil, unbelieving hearts. And I think the same is in view here. They enjoyed the blessings, but when it came time to place their trust in his promises, they revealed they did not believe in God's word. Verse 6 says they have fallen away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm 
and holding him up to contempt. What is happening here? Their rejection and their condemnation is not because they didn't do enough good works, that they weren't impressive enough. It's what they did with Jesus. They crucify once again the Son of God to their own harm and hold him up to contempt. These are people who are rejecting Christ and his free gift. They're holding him up. They're taking his sacrifice and they're holding it in contempt. And so that's why they fall away. That's why they are condemned. And I believe this passage is pointing to those who experiences all the blessings. And again, if we think of experiences in our Christian life, is it possible for someone to be raised in church, to be raised around other believers, to experience all the blessings and advantages that come with that? And even tell themselves, yeah, that's me, I'm along for the ride. And then at some point in their life, reject it completely? It happens all the time. And I believe that this, is, this passage is referring that, to that type of situation. Let's ask the question, what does it mean that it's impossible to restore such people again to repentance? Okay, and again, now, now the, and the difficult thing is, well, it says again, right? Again to repentance, and this is why, this is probably the most difficult phrase in here, because it's saying, it, it's implying that you restored them once to repentance, but now you can't restore them again a second time to repentance. But I believe the, the overall context points to the fact that if there was a sense in which they, again, pointing ahead to the, the parable of the soils, there's a sense in which they embraced the word and received it with joy, but later fell away. That there was a sense in which, again, you know, I've had people say that they've prayed a prayer when they were young. Prayed a prayer, went forward after a sermon, and uh, got saved. And now I reject it all. It's, I don't believe it. It's, it's a myth. Um, that there's a sense in which they made a profession um, but rejected it. But in what sense is it impossible to restore such a person to salvation, to, to repentance? I think it's the impossibility is connected to what they're doing with Christ. They're rejecting and mocking his sacrifice. And his sacrifice is the only hope of salvation. And when you reject the only hope of salvation, what other hope do you have? There's no other possibility for salvation. Some people might point to this passage to teach the, the doctrine called reprobation, that there's a point in which you're past repentance and can't repent, um, that salvation is impossible. All I'll say to that is, if that's true, that's only something God can know. But I believe Scripture teaches that all things are possible, what is impossible with man is possible with God, and that he can save even the most hardened of sinners I don't think we have the ability to look at someone and say they're hopeless because they rejected everything they grew up learning. God himself desires that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yes, Gideon. So in this sense, would it, would it be um, applicable in the, in the idea that in Scripture it says that you can be made new in Christ? So in this, it would be a reference towards if somebody is constantly crucifying Christ within their heart mm -hmm. and they are as that person, or as that man, or as that woman in this world, it's impossible for them to have that repentance. But when they are made new, and they are not that person anymore, then that's where they would end up finding repentance. Is that that's possible. You could definitely say, as, you know, as, as long as they are uh, crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt, it's impossible to restore them to repentance, right? 
because they're rejecting the one gift of salvation. Paul. Would you say that the restoring is referring to the person trying to do the witnessing? That very, I think it, definitely in the sense that is it more difficult? It's impossible for me to get you there. Right. Because you don't want to accept it. Right. But that's the case in any witnessing situation in a sense, right? Justin. If we don't believe the sufficiency of the gospel was there from the beginning, then we continually go back to crucifying the gate sufficient. Mm-hmm. And so it's, a, it's partly on our own making that we're, it wasn't sufficient to begin with, so why would it be sufficient, sufficient again? Right. So it's kind of like the catch-22. Right. Yeah. And, but I will say, you know, this passage may point to the reality, and to some extent, that for someone who is raised in Christianity and later reject it is a harder case. I mean, I think it's definitely true. Uh, you know, one commentator writes, in the spiritual realm, experience suggests that it's possible to be immunized against Christianity by being inoculated with something which for the time being, looks so, looks so like the real thing that it generally mista- is mistaken for it. Um, that there's a sense in which, you know, if this is your experience, you've been around it and you've rejected everything, it's, that's a tougher case, right? It's, it's, it's a diff- more difficult thing uh, to, uh, for that person to, to finally embrace Christ. Um, there are people in this room, I'm sure, who have fervently prayed for loved ones who once claimed to be Christian but have now completely rejected it. And two things I would say to you. Number one, I'm sure you would attest to the fact that genuine repentance and salvation looks more difficult and perhaps unlikely in those cases than others. But two, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And we want to keep that in mind even as we pray for those uh, to accept Christ. I think I saw a hand over here. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, let's before we move on. Let's connect it to verses one through three. Because remember, it said, "Let's move on to maturity, if God permits, for it's impossible." in the case of those who once been enlightened to restore, the, who have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. What's the connection between verses one through three and four through six? So verses one through three is saying, let's move on to maturity. Let's keep moving. Verses four through six, because it's impossible to restore those who fall away. Um, here's what I think he's saying. Christians don't stop. I think that's what he's saying. Christians keep moving forward. So let's keep moving to maturity because those who do stop and reject are those who have fallen away. Those who reject Christ are those who have had an evil, unbelieving heart, right? So to stop and reject is uncharacteristic of someone who is growing in Christ. So he's telling the Christians, let's keep going because for those who stop and reject are those who never had the gift to begin with. Let's keep moving because Christians don't stop. I think that's what he's seeking to communicate. Any other questions or thoughts on that before we move ahead? Because we're going to get some clarity here that I think will ease concerns if there's concerns. Yes? Two theories that I think are wrong but worth discussing. Yeah. Alternative views. Yes. Sure. 
Um, and one's kind of aligned with what Paul just said, uh, it, knowing the truth from elsewhere in Scripture that it is God who grants repentance. Mm-hmm. I can't make you repent. And in reality, you can't repent without God granting that. Right. To you. So uh, one might jump to the conclusion that that's what this is talking about. But as you pointed out to Paul, that's true in any circumstance, not this person that's tasted the faith and then walked away. Right, right. So react to that one, then I'll give you a second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Boil it down into one sentence for me. Um, that the reason it's impossible to restore them through repentance is because only God can grant them repentance. I would say there's a sense in which that's true, but that's, there's also a sense in which that's true for every salvation experience. Exactly. Right? And so he seems to be emphasizing a particular type of person more than just the universal truth. That it's that it's it's God who must give the grace. Well, well put. So the second one is I was trying to see if perhaps this term "fallen away" meant they passed away, they're dead, mm-hmm. life is over. So therefore, that's why they can't repent mm-hmm. because you have to do that before you die. Right. But I looked up the strong concordance for the word, and it has nothing to do with that. So right, <laughs> there goes that theory. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. In fact, fall away. You know, it has much, very much the idea of reject or turn away from. Yes, Lori. Could it be that um, that person that fell away is treating um, God lightly and that they probably think of salvation as something transactional that they can just go back and do have to do over? It's very, I mean, that's very possible that part of the reason why there was a fall away because there wasn't a full understanding of what happens in salvation, right? That it's a transformation. It's not just a simple, you know, transaction. Um, let's go on to verses 7 through 8 because I think this will just give some clarity. And then 9 through 11 will give you more clarity, all right? And we've got 13 minutes to do it, all right? So <laughs> verses 7 through 8 gives an illustration of what he just taught, okay? Verse 7, 4... All right? So he's again giving a reason and uses an illustration. What's the illustration? The land that has drunk the rain that has often falls on it, and then he describes two types of land. Produces a useful crop and those that bear thorns and thistles. All right? So what is the rain that often falls on it? What is it illustrating in our previous passage? Is it salvation? I think it's this. Okay? In other words, everything, enlighten, taste the heavenly gift, share in the Holy Spirit, taste of the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of ages that come. In other words, here's the field, the rain falls on it. There's the blessings, there's the opportunity, there's the Word of God that they're tasting. But then, does it all produce good, a good crop? No, it does not. That either it produces a useful crop, and then there's a blessing from God, or it bears thorns and thistles. And this is why I think it, it, it shows, it gives clarity to the fact that he's not talking about someone who was once saved and now lost it. That the rain that often falls on it is the blessing, the incredible opportunity that these individuals have had. It's fallen on them, 
But if their heart is not, it's not receptive to the gospel, then it bears thorns and thistles. It does not bear fruit of the gospel. And so it's, he's using the illustration to provide more clarity to what he's saying. He's saying, God gives great opportunity, and some people have an immense opportunity, whether they're raised in, in Christianity, raised in salvation, they, they've heard it all, they've seen it all. But some people, all of that watering results in thorns and thistles. Yeah? Verse 7, for the land that has drunk the rain, so if it has saturated the rain, mm-hmm. it has all of those things. Yes. So you can say that they're I don't think so. I don't think so. And, I'll, and, and there's one more point that will give added clarity to it. All right? So I, I believe that this isn't talking about two types of Christians, thorns and thistles and, and productive crop. I believe, and especially when we connect it to the parable of the soils that Jesus gave, that the seed fell on a bunch of different soils and, and, and it was watered. But because of the different types of soils, there was for some an initial reception of the word, there was, there was those that, that rejected it straight away, and, uh, and, but those that had a root and produced fruit are those that understood the gospel and it, and it made a difference in their lives. So I believe that this is actually giving some, some clarity. Matthew 13 um, is another pa- parable, uh, parable of the tares, the wheat and the tares, where it tells about the kingdom of heaven who sows good seed in his field, but while he was sleeping, enemy comes, sows weeds among the wheat and went away. So here's a field with two different types of crop. And the servants find out and they said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How come it has weeds? He says, an enemy has done this. And so the servant said to him, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so you see the same field, same blessings, two results. Um, again, Luke chapter 8, the parable of the soils talks about the same seed falling on the hearts of mankind, but different responses. And I think these illustrate, and the reason why I don't think that this is talking about two types of Christians is that the thorns and thistles, their destiny is cursed and burned. And I have a hard time applying that to a Christian's Destiny. So is seven what I was looking at? Is yeah. seven not those who tasted or received the, 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 the water, mm-hmm. okay, the rain, mm-hmm. and produced the, the good crop? Yes. And others received the rain the same way, mm-hmm. but they got thorns and thistles, which is useless. Right. And they were burned. Right. So those are the saved and the unsaved. Right, yeah, there's a contrast between, contrast. yes, that there's, they've, res- they've all received the same word, but the same water, but some it produces salvation, and others it produces condemnation. And you don't really know the difference until the fruit is formed, right? Um, so just like the people in the wilderness who saw all the evidences uh, that they needed but still rejected God, there's people in church that have heard the gospel, have seen the Spirit work in powerful ways, have read the Bible, even enjoyed the Bible at times, have served in the church, have shared the gospel with others, but as the fruit starts to form, it becomes evident that they have an evil, unbelieving heart. Um, and I believe this is, in a sense, what it's illustrating here. Now again, 
I want to hit this before we dismiss. I might have some time for questions. Um, might, maybe. Maybe I'll just keep talking so I don't have to answer questions. Um, <laughs> uh, though we speak in this way, verse 9, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to what? Salvation. Salvation. So what is that saying? He said, everything I just described, those that have tasted the heavenly gift and all of that, those are things that are not belonging to salvation. Okay? Those are those that do not, have not been saved. But though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, when we think of you, we think of things that belong to salvation. And so there's a contrast there saying, everything I was just talking about was not pertaining to salvation. It was pertaining to those who have enjoyed the blessings and benefits of hearing the word of God and being around the people of God, but have ultimately rejected it. They were not saved. And I think he's using this language to alleviate concern. In fact, this is the only time that he uses the word beloved in the book of Hebrews. Dear friends, right, he uses this enduring language to say, if you're concerned, if this just made you worried, when I think about you, dear friends, I'm convinced that when, I th that when it comes to you, it's the real deal. It's the real deal. He says, everything I just said, I know that's concerning, but I'm not worried about you guys. And remember, what kind of group of Christians was he talking about? Remember the... the uh, the, the earlier in chapter f 5, what was their problem? The readers. They, they, they were slow. They were sluggish. They were dull of hearing. They were still in the milk stage. And those are the people to whom the author says, I'm not concerned about you. I know you have the real deal. And that's really comforting to me. Because I don't want us to walk away from this saying, man, I'm... I'm not far along as I need to be in my Christian walk. I don't know as much as I need to know. I haven't learned everything I need to learn. I'm, I'm really, I'm still in the milk stage. I should be far more advanced to where I am now. Maybe I'm not saved. In Paul here, er, Paul, no, it's not, we don't know it's Paul. I keep doing that. Um, the author of Hebrews, <laughs> that's his official title, um, tells that group of people, immature when they should be mature. They should be teachers. And he says, I'm not concerned about you. I'm convinced that when I think of you, it's pertaining to salvation. So let's ask the question, what gives him such confidence? Verse 10. Can you look at verse 10? What gives them, him confidence that they're the real deal? What kind of fruit? Yeah. Love serving the saints. In other words, assurance you know, isn't found in the fact that you prayed a prayer or were baptized. What was the thing that was going on in the church that, that the author looked at and said, I know. I, when I look at you, I, I see the real deal. What was he seeing? Their kindness and their love and their service for the saints that were done as an act of love toward God. Again, 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 
Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 4, 7 through 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So in other words, when he looked at them, he saw immature Christians who weren't growing like they should. But he saw the fruit of genuine salvation in their lives. And what was he seeing? A love for God and a love for others. And he wanted them to keep moving and growing because that's what Christians do. Those who are along for the ride but eventually fall away aren't Christians. They never were. And he says, that's not you. So keep on moving. And this is effectively what he says in verses 11 through 12. The, the biggest indicator of a life that has received the gospel, has been transformed by it, is really simple. A love for God and a love for others. You may look at your maybe lack of understanding, that you're not as far along as you, as you should be. And I don't think, based off this passage, that, should automatic, that you should automatically conclude from that my soul is in jeopardy, that maybe I'm not saved, that we worry about the state of our soul because of that. That, that, that even for those people that that's true of, he says, it's your love for God and others that convinces me that you have the gospel and you believe the gospel. And that's a, that's a comforting thought. Any, we'll have to stop there. We haven't finished the thought completely, but any thoughts or questions before we wrap it up? Gideon. So in verse 11 of uh, six, mm-hmm. to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Yes. Anything else? Questions? Pushback? We're out of time. Sorry. (laughs) Any any pushback that you want to lob out there and I can have a whole week to chew on and worry over? It's okay. You can. Yes, Linda. (laughs) Give it to me. Let's hear it. Yes. 
Yeah, and, and we're in complete agreement on that, that the Christian life is not one that's absent of repentance because we're just inevitably growing all the time and never sinning. In fact, the Christian life is repentance. And, uh, and there are seasons of life where you do displease the Lord and you're not living as the way you should. Um, but you're right, that there's a repentance in the Christian life that, that God, through His Spirit, convicts our hearts when we're, when we're astray and gives us the grace to, to, to repent and return. In fact, you know, 2 Corinthians 7 talks about two types of sorrow, worldly sorrow that produces death and godly sorrow that produces repentance. And, uh, and so a characteristic of one who's been saved is someone who has that godly sorrow that over their sin that produces, leads to repentance, to, to, to making things right. Because down here it says, uh, to them that have fallen away, to restore them. It's like someone else is trying to restore them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in all, like I said, it's a difficult passage to, <laughs> to interpret. Um, but as I've studied it, I think it actually provides for us a passage that makes sense of, of what we see a lot in our, in our world. Of, um, of many people that have lived around the, the faith and Christianity for many years. Um, and they reach a time where they're like, not, not for me, I reject it, it's all false. And that's a tragic thing when that happens. Um, but it's something that does happen. And, uh, and, and in those cases, number one, I think we, can, we need to find assurance, comfort in this passage, just as the author does, that in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Um, but there, it, this is still a warning passage, right? And so, the, you know, for the one who's cruising through life, you know, living in church, know all the Bible stories, know all the verses, doing, their, doing the Christian thing, um, making as many other people believe that they are saved, then this should be a warning for you, right? That this is not that playing the part does not mean you have the real deal. And, and being the part of the, you know, taking, receiving the blessings of being among the people of God does not mean you have the real deal. And so it should be a warning passage. But for those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and they say, no, he is my savior. I, 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 I have asked him to save me from my sins. I, I trust in him. Well, then we should, we should look at this with, with, um, with comfort and with assurance, and in fact, the, the, the second part of chapter 6 will talk about the certainty of God's promise. And that's the source of our assurance. God is faithful. God's promises are sure. And that's where we have our sure and steady anchor of the soul. Um, so, again, if you have any other questions or thoughts, pushback, you're more than welcome to reach out to me. Like I said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, not, a, I'm not a seminary professor. Um, but uh, I, as I read through this, I think the interpretation of it becomes more and more clear in my mind as far as what it's describing and, uh, and how we should apply it to our lives. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for this time together. I pray that you would um, uh, use your word to impact our hearts, Lord. Lord, that we would um, not just play the part um, and ignore the fact that we may have an evil, unbelieving heart. Lord, if there's anyone here that does have an unbelieving heart, and perhaps they know it, um, that they might see um, their need for Christ. Um, even if everyone else fully believes that they are saved, Lord, I pray that you might 
show them their need for the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would comfort Christians, assure Christians that proof of salvation does not rest in perfection, but it rests in a complete hope and assurance and love in you and in what you have done. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for giving us your word that confronts us when we need to be confronted and comforts us when we need to be comforted. And I pray.